0: Welcome to Making It, a weekly podcast about how to build a great business, produced by Enterprise, your 6am briefing on finance, business, and economics in Egypt. This season is brought to you by CIB, the partner of choice for CEOs and leaders of businesses at all stages of their growth stories, by the United States Agency for International Development, which has a 40-year history of inspiring Egyptian success in partnership with the government and the people of Egypt. And by EFG Hermes, the leading financial services corporation in frontier emerging markets, helping businesses realize their full growth potential. Your host today is Hisham, Enterprises Executive Editor.
1: So the other day I had to spend hours and a lot of money on some bureaucratic mission. Taking the metro, I was exhausted by the whole ordeal and I was running on fumes. I needed a quick snack just to get through the rest of the trip. Stopping at a kushk, my eyes glazed over the Cadburys and the Snickers, and before I even weighed my options, I quickly reached out to a nice big bag of maltos. It did the trick, but halfway through finishing it, I got to thinking, why did I almost instinctively pick the malto? Was it the packaging, the placement in the store, price, or the ad that I just saw when I was passing by with that colorful mascot? And that led me to wonder, how, in a saturated, no pun intended, snacks market filled with international brands, did Edita, the makers of Malto, Todo, Bake Rolls, and Twinkies, managed to dominate and lead? Since its founding in 1996, Edita had expanded its brand lineups, its product offerings, its manufacturing facilities, and has even opened a facility in Morocco. It has weathered the economic storm that came with the 2016 EGP float and the subsequent inflation that has hit the fast-moving consumer goods sector hard. Here to tell us about how this local company made good and is still doing it is its founder and chairman and CEO Hani Birzi. Prior to founding Edita, Hani had successfully completed the sale of his family's snack food business, Tasty Foods Egypt. He didn't just rest on his laurels though, as his love for product development and marketing led him to found the snack food giant we know today is something that we ask all our guests that come in. You guys weren't born successful business leaders. You guys had childhoods too. And we want to ask you about that. If you had to pick one toy or game that you played with as a kid that impacted who you are as a business leader, what would it be? I was very passionate
2: about playing and watching football since my childhood. And I personally played football in the Gizira Sporting Club and a different team. Uh, I was very good at it, by the way, and uh, very close. I was going to miss being a businessman because I was so good at... uh, one big Egyptian club here asked me to join them. On oh, no course, way. Yes. So maybe the first time I confess and say so. But, you know, I had to follow my study and my education.
1: So it was difficult for me to skip all that for football. Tell us about that transition to you founding Edita. Tell us about that story, the origin of Edita and founding it.
2: I'm an engineer. I I'm graduated from Enchamps University as a computer and control engineer, but I've said that many times. I was never born to be an engineer. Uh, you know, that was never my passion. But education system, when you get good grades at uh, high school, then you pick uh, the top university. And this is what I did. Despite I dislike uh, engineering, uh, I was never, as I said earlier, I was never made, born to be an engineer. But I followed my education quite nicely. And I think it helped me a lot in organizing my mind. Uh, And think strategically, I think that was the benefit I got from engineering university. Then uh, I followed immediately my uh, family business with my father, who was already in snack food uh, many years ago. And I followed uh, what he was doing. So for many years, I mean, I worked with him for almost 10 years till uh, we sold the business to a multinational company. And I found myself, I can say, jobless. It was a very difficult time for me, despite I was for the idea of a uh, joint venture with the multinational, then sell the business later on. But for me, it was very difficult to find myself overnight uh, from one position to no position and no job. And I think that was a very important part of my life. And I had to stop and think what I need to do next. At the certain moment, I said, OK, enough industry. Um, uh, I don't want to continue in industry. I've been 10 years working, labor problem, machine equipment, you know, it's not easy to be in industry. And I said to myself, well, I will start a trading company and I will use all my knowledge on sales and distribution and marketing, import product and just distribute them. But again, as I said earlier, I was never born to be an engineer. I was never born to be a trader. So I didn't fit there. It was not what I like to do. And I was trying to find the right opportunity, actually, to enter back and to go back into industry until I got this product in my hands, uh, the croissant, the packed croissant, that attract my attention by default. As I said, I'm not an engineer, but I was always passionate about sales and marketing. So it attracted my attention. I said, well, uh, this could be a good entry for me back to the industry. And that's exactly what I did. I established a Dita food industry and launched the first packed croissant in Egypt in 1996 was quite challenging it was quite
1: that must have been a delicious croissant <laughs> it was
2: actually a delicious <laughs> croissant and i thought always you know my generation was uh, i mean the the snacks that we used to eat was potato chips uh, extruded snacks uh, so packed baked croissant was something let's say i don't want to say innovation but i call it at that time the second generation of snacks and uh Despite everybody told me, honey, you're crazy, what are you doing? Egyptian, they eat full and Tameya in the morning, who eat croissant? But I say, no, I think uh, we can launch this product. And I'm, I was very passionate to create brand. I mean, this is what I like to do. Create brands into Egyptian market, be pioneer. And uh, that's exactly what I did. I followed the dream and that was my dream. That was my plan to go back into industry. And croissant was my entry point.
1: You've achieved this dream. It is, it is a success. It managed to be a homegrown company that is leading in FMCG in a market that has a lot of big international players. What was your secret sauce? How did you manage to do that? Coming back to the
2: dream. Did I achieve all my dreams? No. If you believe that you have achieved all your, all your dream, then you have to retire. and, then, and then. But that's not the case for me. Dreams are a continuous story for me. You finish one dream, you start another dream. So this journey of dreaming never ends uh, for me. Yes, I understand there is multinational, but uh, I have partnered with multinationals. So for 10 years, I worked with them even for a couple of years. I clearly understand their mentality. I clearly understand their strengths and their weakness. So it was good for me to know how they think. And uh, this is what I try to induce in my company in Edita. And uh, it was a little bit different. I try to induce a culture that I call a global culture, which is a mix between uh, global, which is multinational and local, which is the family business that I'm coming from. To mix these two culture both culture has positive and negatives so i try to pick the best out of the two cultures and i induce them in my company and i like multinational by the way i learned a lot from them they have very good things to learn of and also family business they have very positive seeing at the same time and i like to compete against multinational to the contrary people think oh i would not compete against the multinational no i prefer to compete against the multinational rather than to compete to a small player small local
1: player You guys acquired from Hostess the license for Twinkies and other brands, but you're also creating new brands internally. From a revenue standpoint, how do they compare their contribution to revenue?
2: Well, uh, yes, that's correct. We bought the trademark from uh, Hostess Cake in 2013 because we bought the company that produced Hostess Cake in Egypt in 2003 with a license and trademark agreement. And the next day we bought the company, hostess in the United States went bankrupt. Right. And the market was still on growing till we really, it was quite a big concern for me because you are building, uh, well, then being strong brands and big sales revenue and you don't own the brand. So it was quite frustrating for me. And as I said, I like to create brand. I like to build brand. But now I was building brands that, didn't belong to me. And uh, we introduced many brands after that. And I'm treating all my brands in similarity, you know, like my children.
1: And contribution to revenue though for the company, how do they compare? We by try percentage? to balance,
2: I mean, revenue of company. Uh, I'd like to see the revenue stream from different brands equally distributed because it's very difficult. It's very risky, let's say, to have brands that dominate your sales revenue. And that could be risky because if anything happened to this brand, then you will be in trouble. So we're trying to be very careful that the stream of revenue come equally from all the brands that we have. Of course, they're not equally at the moment, but we are trying to grow the brands that are not there at the level that we want them to be.
1: How did you resist the temptation to get acquired? Even though you've said like when you started with your family, your family business got acquired by a big multinational. Have you gotten offers to get acquired?
2: Yes, we get offers every day. But as I said, you don't repeat your mistake. (laughs) (laughs) I cannot say it was a mistake. It was a decision, the right decision at the right time. But when you think about it again, if I am at the position today, I would not repeat it. I would not do it again. Do I regret that the family business was sold to a multinational? Somehow, yes, I'm regretting that.
1: Why? What was, the, what was the regret there? Just not having to start over again?
2: No, because I think if we had these two businesses combined, combined today, Edita oh. and the other business, we would have been in a different league, I would say. And the objective of selling the business was not to get cash and monetize. The objective was to grow, but this didn't happen.
1: Now, to some of our listeners who are not as well informed about the fast-moving consumer goods market, explain to us how important is marketing in this sector?
2: It's very important because these brand you buy them on impulse, you know, so you have to be very visible, you have to recognize the brand, you have to advertise the brand, you have to market the brand. So it's quite important. In my company, we have two very important departments, I call them the marketing and the sales. So the marketing is the brain and the sales are the muscles. And my sales team always get disappointed when I say so. And they tell me that mean we don't have brains no, but very true because the marketing is the department that manages the brand. They manage the brand, they manage the forecast, they manage the position of the brand, the pricing, the quality, and the sales are the muscles of the organization. And it's very, very important to the company. But again, marketing is the brain.
1: Right. How much do you guys invest in marketing?
2: We used to invest close to 3.5% of our sales revenue, but recently these numbers have jumped to 5%. Because of the complexity of the business, the multitude, the multiple brands that we have. So we have stretched a little bit our marketing budget on top. Marketing, uh, advertising is becoming very, very expensive now with the extra taxes that was imposed. Right. And uh, the monopoly that exists also on the media at the moment, prices have jumped to crazy numbers, honestly.
1: What homegrown um, companies that have kind of sort of adopted your playbook to combine marketing and R&D and production of scale. Like, who are your local competitors? here you know,
2: None of them have adapted any of what I'm doing, honestly. And probably this is an advantage they have over me because their cost is much lower than mine. And what they do is uh, copying some of my brand. And, you know, in Egypt, they always say copyright is the right to copy. They enjoy a really free world to work in. They don't pay their tax. They have no governance. So they manage. So you're to talking room.
1: about very small players. But
2: those small players are not small anymore Okay. they used to be small. Now they are growing. They cater for a large base of Egyptian consumer. We have seen recently report that the poverty rate in Egypt has grown from 26% to 30%. That's a good 30 million people they cater for. And we cannot compete in price. We can compete in quality and they uh, compete in, in both price and size. Some consumer, they really need to eat something big, not important the quality so much as long as it is well-priced or cheap priced. And I say always, you, you are penalized because you are a big company in Egypt. You'd rather be a company that works in the shadow. Of course, that doesn't match my belief and uh, I would never do something like that. But if you work on the shadow, in the shadow today, you can enjoy good profits.
1: What more needs to be done on in enforcement on that front? You you
2: have to regulate, Uh, you have to regulate the whole industry. You have to regulate the whole business in Egypt. They have to pay tax. Paying tax in Egypt is not an option. It's not a luxury. You have to pay your taxes. If you evade tax here in Egypt, you are not penalized as you are doing that in Europe or in the United States. So the government need to be more stringent here.
1: So if you had to start over again now, what subsector of FMCG would you go into?
2: That's a question that I've never thought of. I don't know if I will have to start today. I don't think if I'll have to start today, I will start. <laughs> I think I'm getting old now to to do all that again, but uh,
1: constant dreaming, think, you were um, saying constant dreaming.
2: yeah, constant dreaming, but the dream has already started, <laughs> right? You don't start dream at this age, you know. so
1: <laughs> so let's say I am an aspiring person who is trying to build the next edita. yes. What subsector or subsegment which should I be going into?
2: I think I would do whatever I'm doing now. I think all subsectors are still very positive. There is lots of things to be done here, not only locally but regionally also. So no, I would do the same thing with the same pace, with the same thinking, with the same methodology.
1: Because you that think what the lessons the, back then apply today's, the even lessons, though the circumstances we, we have changed. We keep on learning.
2: We learn every day. We never stop learning. Who tell you that uh, we learned from the past? No, we always continue to learn. And all mistakes that we do are learnings and they are investment because those mistakes should not be repeated in the future. But we learn every day. I learned that.
1: So do you think the formula will constantly apply? Always. Always, Always. yes. Regardless of the circumstances, because you guys face some tough challenges.
2: Yeah, when you are a captain of the ship, you have to steer it in all condition, on all weather. You know, you leave the harbor and you don't know what you will see. Yes, with today technology, you can know the forecast. You can predict, but sometimes you find yourself in circumstances that you you really need to steer the ship in bad weather. And uh, you have to make sure that you maneuver it properly and to bring it safe. And we had lots of storms over the past three, four, five, and maybe eight years in Egypt. And thanks God, we managed to, let's say, to maneuver very good within these very big storms.
0: Making It is brought to you in association with USAID. For 40 years, the American people through USAID have invested over 30 billion dollars to inspire Egyptian success in partnership with the government and the people of Egypt.
1: Let's talk about the sector in general. Industry and manufacturing here in Egypt have been saddled with a bunch of issues. Everything from availability of land to how easy it is to get permits to gas prices that supply the factories. The government has tried to do some things. They've, they've established a new permit system. They are saying that they're making land more and more available. Are they doing enough on both the policy front and the implementation front on to resolve these issues? That's a good question.
2: No, industry is suffering in Egypt for the past eight or nine years. I mean, and, and, and you see it clearly, I mean, there is no new investment coming, whether local investment on foreign direct investment. The government is doing its best to attract foreign direct investment. But I've said to them, if the local investor will not start to invest, the foreign direct, the foreigners will not come to invest in Egypt. We have lots of challenges. Again, it's not a matter of put regulation or new investment law. It's not that, it's the how to do business, the ease of doing business. I think we are missing a lot in that front, we are missing in the land, land, cost of land and I will speak about cost of investment in general before I move to land. Cost of investment today in Egypt is forbidden. If you want to buy a piece of land for industry, you will pay a lot of money today, it's unjustifiable and can give you a very clear example. The cost of land today for industry £3,000, approximately £3,000 per square meter. Yes, you can find lands for 400 and 800 but with no infrastructure available which means you will start your project without electricity, without gas, without water, without sewage. And I have faced this problem. I have been through that process in my factory in Benisweth. So as I said, the cost of doing investment in Egypt, the industry today is very, very expensive. Look at the interest rate. Yes, we see interest rate coming down this day. But four years ago, the interest rate to borrow and borrow is not a luxury in investment. You know, borrow is an integral part of any of any investment. And uh, you need to leverage your company to have a decent uh, rate uh, IRR on your investment. So it was forbidden also at 20 percent and 21 percent, What are especially in FMCG, how you can afford to sell a product at cheap price and you pay 20 percent interest rate. I mean, it's impossible, actually. The valuation definitely hit the industry overall Unclarity in the monetary policy and... Uh so all that was very confusing, I'm saying, and the government need to take that and tackle that very seriously. It's not a matter of issuing a new investment law. It's not a matter of saying, yes, we want to encourage foreign direct investment. We need to see fact on the on the ground. We need them to put their hand, hand in hand. We need to stop seeing the crowding out of the private sector. I mean, that's very important. Private sector and industry, this is what will generate sustainable work. And the economy in Egypt actually will not our GDP will not grow and the economy will not move unless Egyptians get richer. And in need Egyptians to get richer. When I say richer, I mean they get more money in their pocket so that disposable income for spending will be larger. And this will not happen unless industry will start to operate work and the private sector start to play an important role in the economy.
1: Since we're on the macro and you brought up the devaluation, 2016, pound falls, inflation skyrockets. And basically, if you import your capital goods, then you are in trouble as a manufacturer. What was your strategy as Edita to cope with that?
2: It was a tough time. And um, I've been working 30 years plus in FMCG. So I've been through devaluation before. I have been through sales tax implementation. I have been through many, many obstacles, but never seen all of them happen at the same time. So whatever happened in 2016 with all the economic reform, I said it was not on my troubleshooting book. You know, you try to put all your experience in your troubleshooting. There book. was so no
1: playbook for this. There
2: is. There was no playbook. So there was a buzz. It's like the cockpit and the pilot is sitting. You see a red light on uh, on the ceiling. He opened page 10 in his troubleshooting book, Pressed to other bottom and he turned off there. there <laughs> the light was still on. So you had to play a trial and error, but you had to take bold decision. And uh, I think here is the role of leadership in full honesty. So I had to take very bold decision. And uh, one very bold decision that I had to raise all the prices of my, of my SQs. All my brands, I doubled the price. And you know, in Egypt, in FMCG, you have to raise prices by, by doubling them 100% sometimes from 50 piastres to one pound, from one pound to two pounds. So it's, it's a, very, a very big hit for the consumer and for companies.
1: Yeah, I'm sure your volumes got hit as a result. The volume got hit uh, badly,
2: badly. But again, I said that was the right thing to do. There was no other option to survive. It was a survival issue. We employ a lot of people, we had obligation, we had commitment, and the only thing to do was to raise your prices and bite the bullet and work on maintaining, sustain your quality, Again, do what is right for the company and for the organization. And that's what I did. Yes. Did you have to tweak the ingredients? Never. Never? No, we never tweak ingredients. That's a very, we are very rigid. Into so even if the price
1: of one of those ingredients have gone up, you just had to bite the bullet and continue to do it.
2: Yes, because sometimes you cannot substitute the ingredient. The process in Edita is a Kaizen system. Improvement and continuous improvement. Everybody in the organization, if you walk in and you ask them, they will tell you that. It's improvement, continuous improvement. We always have to be on our tiptoes. We, have, we always have to innovate. We always have to be on top. The top of mind for us is to be brand leader and market leader. I mean, we are very disappointed when we lose some market share.
1: So since 2016, and despite all the troubles, you launched your new brands, you have Toto Mini, you have your donuts, you launched the rebranding campaign for Malto, and probably more important than all of that, you inaugurated your eighth factory, the eo 8 factory. How did you do that in a high interest rate environment?
2: Well, EO8 was on... And by the way, I have done that even in 2011. In the middle of the first revolution in Egypt, we had heavy investment. We had a factory to inaugurate in Suef. We have one other factory in 6th of October. And I was building still my headquarter in Sheikh Zayed. And I recall very well one of the bold decisions that I had to take also. It was a crisis meeting. I gathered all my thinkers, all my vice president around the table and say, guys, what are we going to do? We are seeing a big revolution. We don't know what will happen in Egypt. There is lots of uncertainty. We are in the middle of our investment. What should we do? And all the advice around the table said, honey, you have to stop. We have to wait till we see more clarity. And I say, thank you very much for the advice. I'll take my risk and I will continue the investment. Because my thought was, OK, I took a risk. It's a 50-50 chance. But I don't know, I had a great belief that Egypt will overcome all these. I don't know. Egypt has always been protected, to be honest. And I said, if I will succeed, then I will be ahead of my competitors. And I succeeded, actually. And that's what helped me moving into 2015 for an IPO, because I was growing very fast. And I have to say, it's a case study. It was before the uh, devaluation of the pound and before the hike of interest rate. But again, I was in the middle of the interest rate hike and devaluation in 2016 when I was building my E8 factory. Of course, the cost of the factory went doubled, was doubled. But again, I say, if I want to repeat that today, I will not do it because the cost will not be justifiable. And that's a great advantage that we have today, that we have E8 uh, facility available. Then we can push the button and add capacity whenever we feel we need to. And that's what we are doing today, what we are doing this year. We are adding capacity, we are adding investment in our facility, just the cost of the line without having to add anything on infrastructure and uh, factory space. That's a great advantage in my opinion. Where do you guys export and how much? We export around 10% of our uh, our revenue and we export in the region, mainly Africa and the Middle East. This is our target uh, market, not because we cannot penetrate other markets, but we have some constraint in our shelf life. You know, we produce products that have fragile ingredients, let's say, and the shelf life could range from two weeks up to three months. And logistics is not easy. I mean, to export far uh, part of the world, I mean, otherwise our product will be expired. So... 10%, I think it's a good, uh, it's a good figure. I would like to see that in the next three to four years double. I mean, I would like not double, 50% more to 15%.
1: Through penetration of the regions that you already sell to?
2: Yes, penetration through, I mean, have a stronger footprint on those, uh, on those markets, plus opening for sure new markets. On top of that, I would like to see Edita become a regional player. And that's a step, uh, part of, this is one of my dream, let's say that, starting to be achieved. I mean, as you know, and we have disclosed that we are moving now to Morocco. We are setting our first, uh, our first factory abroad uh, overseas in Casablanca. And uh, I'm very happy and confident of this move.
1: Is there a dream at some point down the road for you to penetrate further than the regional market? Yes.
2: We would like to make an acquisition maybe in Europe. Oh, wow. Yes. You know, we, we, we think big, you know, we dream big, uh,
1: any revelations that can come here or what brand, what, what are you looking at in Europe? No, we are
2: fishing around. Uh, okay. We know it would has to be within the segment we operate, but it has something that could be accretive for Edita, something that we can benefit from not only for the market in Europe, but also maybe bring up and buy some technology for our region.
1: Wow! All right. I think part of the advantage that you guys have had here is that you are homegrown. Other than the multinationals who've grown their brands and adapted those brands to much different markets, you guys developed your brands here in Egypt, understanding the taste of the Egyptian consumer.
2: That, no, we adapted the product.
1: You adapt the product oh, of itself. Course
2: we adapt. Right? I mean, even when so I, a
1: todo here is different from a todo, let's say in yes, Morocco.
2: Yes, of course could be sugar, sugar level content cream fillings different because the taste differ from one part of the world than the other so moroccan they don't have uh, the same taste like egyptian and we don't have the same taste that they do
1: right so uh, also regulatory product. as well
2: right on regula- of course there is lots of regulation regulation are getting tougher today on fats in particular on trans fat and uh, hydrogenated fats so this is the role of our R&D every country we export to we have to follow their regulation I mean, uh, their specification and the quality and the restriction they have on the product, whether on shelf life, whether on the usage of ingredients, uh, this is on the regulatory side. But on consumer side, we research. We don't go to Casablanca and try to impose our product to the consumer in Morocco. On the contrary, we are doing stringent and very difficult research and it cost us a lot of money just to make sure whatever is launched in Morocco is according to the taste of the consumer there. So nothing come by luck today, it's finished, you know. I said the luck is an important part of the equation, but we have to do our homework also at the same time.
1: You are the chairman of the Food Export Council. There was a big issue with export subsidy payouts. Um, You can call me the
2: disappointed chairman of the food. Oh, really? Oh, yes. I'm very (laughs) disappointed.
1: How much in your sector alone in export subsidies are you guys owed?
2: Three billion Egyptian pound. Wow. Three to 3.5 billion Egyptian pound. Yes.
1: So. The export
2: fund owes the the food exporter 3.5 billion.
1: Total. Total, yes. Wow. Um. That's why I'm disappointed. Have you got? They've made a big show. The government over the last few months that they've started paying out these export subsidies. Have they started? They did in the last few weeks. They did. Is the rate? Do they need to speed it up or... Because no, they, they gave out they... a timeline for it. Are you guys happy with the timeline?
2: No, we're not happy with the timeline. We're not happy with the speed that this is happening because whatever they offset it, they offset it with company that owe taxes or they had a dispute with the with the tax authority. But a big chunk out of the 3 billion that they owe us has no dispute with the tax authority. So we have to find different modus operandi and that's what we have agreed with them. But at least the government has, let's say accepted that they owe us money and they accepted that they will pay us back. And as long as they have accepted that, then we are willing to compromise.
1: How much has this delay in paying out export subsidy hurt exports, Egyptian exports, especially in food?
2: Look, they didn't hurt in particular the export, but they hurt the exporters themselves because it hurt their cash flow. Some of them, they have already included those numbers in their balance sheet and they felt a big pressure from their auditor that they have to take a provision for this number and that would have been catastrophe for them because uh, their balance sheet will will be totally disturbed. On top of that, some of the exporter, uh, we lost opportunities because they can, I mean, the subsidies was used to be able to achieve a target price or support the brands in certain market. I mean, people think that this subsidy goes in our pocket or the pocket of the food exporter or the exporter in general. To the contrary, this is passed to our consumer. This is passed to our exporter, to our traders, just to make sure that we are competitive. So definitely we lost ground. And that's why you see that our exports are, are not growing the way they should.
1: How should they be growing had these subsidies been paid out? Easily, we could have doubled our exports. Wow. To that extent? To that extent, yes. Do you see a light at the end of the tunnel through all this? Oh, yeah. I always see light at the end of the tunnel. So you think this whole export subsidies thing will be cracked soon? It has to be cracked because
2: the government understands that's an important uh, revenue stream for foreign currency to Egypt. But we need to see implementation on the ground,
1: as I say. Let's go back to something more positive. Yes, please. <laughs> um, Morocco. Mm-hmm. We're building your factory there. Yes. Thank you. Why now and why there?
2: Well, Morocco is a good hub for West Africa. Uh, and coming back to the point that my you need to you need to have export. We need to have a foreign component in our revenue because we import uh, 28% of our raw material from abroad and they are fully dependent on FX. So we need to have a revenue stream from export. We need to expand. We need to be present uh, in regional market. And as I said, this is part of Edita strategy. This is part of my dream to become a regional player. I've always been, I don't want to say offended, but I've always been jealous when I see Arab investment coming to Egypt and not only Arabs and foreign investment coming to Egypt. I'm not saying that I'm against them, but you see in Egypt, you have Saudi investment, you have Kuwait investment, you have Tunisian investment, you have Yemeni investment, you have investment from all over the world and in the Jordanian investment. So why we don't see Egyptian investment abroad? Correct. We are a very big market. I mean, we are the largest market in the region. That's true. But there is also very big market like Morocco, like Algeria. Uh, like Saudi, that we need to see and encourage Egyptian investment and Egyptian industry to move into that front. And that's a step that I decided to do. Morocco is a decent market. I think it's very well regulated. They encourage foreign direct investment. It's a good hub for West Africa and we are very far to ship from Egypt to West Africa, especially in my my product because of the shelf life constraint. So that's why uh, Morocco was, was a good choice. The government will always support me. And maybe you have seen, I was there a couple of weeks ago and we signed with the Moroccan uh, Minister of Industry a grant. They gave us a grant of 15 million dirham for our investment. As a grant, you see how they encourage industry. They encourage foreign direct investment.
1: What are they doing over there that is missing here?
2: It's not only saying, okay, we have a new investment law, we have this, we have that. We need really execution on the ground. When we say you're going to pay incentive to exporter, and I'm not talking me about Egyptian, I can understand. The government situation, I can understand the crisis we have been through. But if I'm a foreign investor and I come to invest and you promise me you're going to pay me a rebate on my export, then for five years, don't pay me a penny. I don't think this is encouraging. And people talk. It's not a matter that this is something in the shadow. Everybody will know. it, So nobody will come to Egypt. So we have to be very careful on how we treat uh, foreign investors. We need to see also a very clear 10 years of stability in monetary policy in in strategy, in law, you cannot have in
1: every... regulatory in reg- and Definitely, yeah.
2: definitely. I mean, industry is a long-term investment. We're still looking at amending our investment law and it was just amended. We are still taxation. looking at our taxation. Uh, we are still looking at the VAT. We are now imposing extra tax for the Healthcare Act. I mean, all these are surprises are not good surprises for investor investment in industry needs stability you need clarity I want to know that for the next 10 years I will not be surprised by a new regulation or a new law that will disrupt my visibility study from my project as I said it's not a trading I'm not buying a container I will sell it tomorrow make my profit that's a long-term investment it's five years 10 years 15 years 20 years even so I need stability I need
1: clarity and down the road where else are you looking at what's after Morocco
2: We are looking at Saudi at the moment. I think there is lots of reforms happening in Saudi. It's a very interesting market, very strong market in the region. Contrary to what you hear, I think there is lots of attention to Saudi now. I'm waiting also to see some part of our region stabilised, like Syria, like Iraq, like Libya. All these are very promising market for Egypt.
1: All right. Well, we're coming up to the end. Our last question to kind of wrap it all up nicely in a bow for our listeners. If you were to pitch your company to an investor, and I'm sure you do that on a regular basis, why would the investor invest in Edita?
2: It's a company that is not, managed by one person. I always say that's a company that uh, we are a centralized and decentralized organization. And investors like to hear these uh, these statements. I mean, and when I say decentralized, I mean, we are decentralized in department. Every vice president in the company have to take the decision. He deems a necessary course within a certain authority matrix, as I say. So it, nothing has to come to the CEO or to the chairman of the company. The company is run and uh, has been IPO'd. And one of the questions I've been asked from many investors, why did you IPO? Why a family business want to go to an IPO? I say because I want the legacy of Edita to remain in my family, but I'm not sure if the family members will continue to manage this organization. I'm not sure that I will find the talent within my family, in my successor, or my third and fourth generation will be there to manage Edita. So it's a company that meant to be here, meant to stay, and the company will... uh, at any moment, if they don't have the talent within the family, we'll look at the professional manager to sit on board and steer the wheel. So it's not a company that it's a one-man show. And that's very, very important. If I'm not here tomorrow, it doesn't mean that the company is collapsed. And all my team members know that. I always tell them no one is irreplaceable, including myself. So no one should think that if he's not there, that the business will fall. The company has very strong pillars. The company has proper policies, procedures, and system in place that is not dependent on anyone. Yes, I value all my, my team members for sure, don't get me wrong, but I'm saying the company is built in a way that if I'm not here tomorrow, Or if one of my vice president is not there tomorrow, it doesn't mean that we will collapse. The system will continue. Our bench is full. We look at our talents. We build career paths for our team members. I like to see Egyptian young talent in my organization. If you come and check my average age, my average age is very, very low on top. I keep my value personnel and team member even after retirement age. The people who had created value for Edith, I always take care of them. I want them to stay near me as consultant. So there is lots of fundamentals and I can talk a lot uh, about it. That's why we are very well seen at the stock market. Uh, investor like us and we deliver what we say. We deliver our promises, we deliver our numbers and we set objectives that are achievable.
0: We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you want to comment or maybe suggest a guest, send us an email at makingit at enterprise.press. That's makingit at enterprise.press. Making It is produced by Enterprise, your morning briefing on business, finance, and economics in Egypt. Subscribe today for free at enterprise.press. Did you like today's episode? Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows. Did you love today's episode? Like us or give us a five-star rating and a review to help others discover us. Next week's episode will be out on Friday at 8 a.m. This season is brought to you by CIB, USAID, and EFG Hermes. And that's how we're making it.